you saying that. That's wonderful. Yeah. Good to see everyone. Especially especially for Diane and me because we've been gone for a little while. We missed two Lord's Days and I'm very thankful for uh, the help of my brothers who I've gotten good reports from, not from them. They always say, well, as far as I can tell, it went okay. <laughs> but I get feedback from you. So Jason, thanks for teaching a couple of weeks ago. And Tim, uh, thank you again. You are my number one assistant, and you've probably taught four times now, at least three, maybe four. I'm very grateful, and, and I look forward to using Jason some more and a few others. Um, hoping to call on some of you ladies to teach the class, so. <laughs> anyway, good to be back. Um, thank you for your prayers on our behalf while we were gone. Not everyone knew that our one of our main purposes for going to Houston was not to see Jonathan and Tina and the boys, although we did enjoy seeing them, but really it was to get a second opinion from MD Anderson concerning my the state of my cancer and so forth. And some of you have perhaps read um, my letter to the church, either my email or I would suggest better yet my Facebook post, even though it's long, it explains. So the long and short of it is, for any of you who don't know, is that uh, when I got there, they said um, it's almost certain that you have cancer still because your PSA refuses to go to zero. That's not a good sign when you've been on Lupron for two years, so we need to find out where it is. Hopefully it's still confined to your prostate gland, but it could be elsewhere. So have a PET scan, have an MRI, go through all that we did. And when the time of consultation came, you know, that kind of moment of truth, revelation, um, he was able to say, we see some activity in your prostate gland, but we no longer think that's cancer. We've submitted that to a top-notch surgeon uh, who works on prostate glands, and he and I believe that is what we're seeing there is not cancer, but it's um, inflammation caused by your radiation at Vanderbilt, which is common because, you know, you're sort of cooking, you're cooking your prostate gland. <laughs> and I've told a lot of people it's, it's a little bit like taking a, a sizzling steak off the grill and putting it on that plate that you put it on just before you go to the table. It's still sizzling. It's still cooking. So if you want it to be rare, you, uh, you need to be careful, how, you know, to take it off in time because it's going to cook some more even if while it's off. The good news of that is that radiation continues to actually do its intended work long after it's been over. So our hope is that it's just um, inflammation. That's what they believe. He said, I want you to leave here today with the assumption that you no longer have prostate cancer and we see it nowhere else in your body so it was scary you know <laughs> thank you <laughs> it was scary uh, probably not consistent not consistent with faith but sort of scary to go in there and I told Diana I said we need to 
at least be prepared for bad news. Um, it could be that it, you know they'll say it's gone to your lungs, it's gone to your bones, it's gone to your brain. But in God's kindness, um, they said we see no evidence anywhere else in your body of cancer, and we don't think that's cancer. No, it was, but it, so you know we want to be cautious. And I'm, as I said in one of my posts, in that last post, I'm, I intend to write a few more things. Not a report on that, but perspectives. And I hinted in that post that there's only one problem with being cancer-free, if indeed I am, and that is that I'm still dying. And so are you. And I want to reflect on that. I want to reflect on that. Because we all have a death sentence hanging over us. You say, well, what a nice way to start the Lord's Day. You're really encouraging. Thanks, Pastor, for the encouragement. But that is the truth. And we... Um, but the, the, the wonderful thing is that when we die, if we're true believers, that's when we really start to live. So we, we, we don't fear death. It sobers us, but we don't fear it. And one of the things I've been praying for through this whole two-plus years is that God would give me a heart that actually desires death. And I've prayed, God, grant me what the Apostle Paul had when he said, um, I have a desire to depart. That's a nice word, but that's, for, that's a substitute for dying. I have a desire to die. And I don't think it was because life was so miserable for Paul. It's because he's, he tells us why. Because he loved Christ, and to be with him was far better. And I think we should all pray that. Lord, not necessarily asking you to take me home right now, unless that would please you, but give me that desire. Because it will represent a profound faith and a deep love for you. So anyway... Um, thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your encouragement. So many of you have already spoken to me, and I'm sure some of you have spoken to Diane. So let's let's jump into our class today. It is on. Thank you. Um, let me just pray real briefly, and we'll we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, as we come to this profoundly mysterious and yet glorious truth that our Savior, the second person of the Godhead, came to this earth and took on flesh so that he could redeem those of us who sit around these tables today. We thank you for the mysterious truth that you, Lord Jesus, are both God and man. And we pray that you will help us understand the concept as best it can be humanly understood, but also help us to quickly and, and humbly bow down before the mystery and say, I don't have to understand this. I just have to believe it. And bring us to that place, Lord. We thank you for minds that are rational, that are designed to understand the things that are understandable. But help us to know the line which we cannot cross over because of our humanity, because of our finiteness. So bless us today, Lord Jesus. We, we come to think about you 
you're seated, seated upon a throne right now. And there, wherever you are, is a human body which you took upon yourself as a part of what was essential to redeem us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to think of you often as not just the Son of God, but the Son of Man, who bears yet in your body the scars of the crucifixion. We thank you that a day will come when we will see you face to face. And maybe we will, like Thomas, put our hands in the holes in your hands. Not because we don't b believe, but because they're so precious. So Lord, even today, don't let this class just be theological. We don't want to be just theologians. We want to be theological because it helps us to know and love you better. So help us to see the practical dimensions of this grand subject before us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, I was thinking about a quiz, and uh, I'm not going to give you a quiz, but I'm going to let you pretend that you're taking one, and here are seven questions. So just think about them for a moment. I don't think I'll even take time to draw out from you what you think the answers would be. I'm trying to make a point. The first question would be, and I'll confess to you that the first, um, the first three or four are trick questions. So just realize right now, okay, I can't answer that fast because if I do, it'll probably be wrong. When did the Son of God come into existence? If any of you thought quickly when he was born of the Virgin Mary, you are wrong. He never came into existence. Okay? Number two, how many persons are there in Jesus Christ? If you say two, you are wrong. He is one person. Okay? <laughs> All right. He is one person. Number three, what are the two natures of the Son of God? What are the two natures of the Son of God? Key words are Son of God, not Son of Man. You will properly answer by saying, there aren't two natures in the Son of God. He is one divine person as the Son of God. I didn't ask, what are the two natures of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If I had asked that, you would have said divine and human. Number five, what should we call a person who denies the deity of Jesus Christ? Antichrist. Antichrist would be a good, that's a great answer. In fact, I didn't anticipate that. Similarly, what should, what should we call a person who denies the humanity of Jesus Christ? 
There's not necessarily one answer, but I'll give you the one that, that I think ought to come to our mind sooner or later, and probably sooner. And that is a heretic. A heretic. That's what you call a person who denies the deity of Jesus Christ. Or who denies the humanity of Jesus Christ. And then finally, this is a longer one. If the Son of God was equal to the Father in his divinity and glory, possessing all of the attributes of the Godhead, including, of course, omniscience, all knowledge. So if, if that is the case, that he's equal to the Father in his divinity, he possesses all of the attributes of the Godhead, then why did he speak of his second coming in the following words? Quote, this comes from Mark's gospel, concerning that day, Jesus is speaking, concerning that day, the day of his return, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows, not even the Son. Now wait a minute. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, all equal in power and glory. And yet, he says, not even the Son. So, is one of the persons of the Trinity clueless? Does one of the persons of the Trinity lack omniscience? You're all shaking your heads the right way, back and forth, this way, not up and down. <coughs> Jesus is clearly, I'm just giving the answer now, speaking now as the Son of Man. He's not technically saying, I want you to think of me this second as the Son of God. He just he called himself the Son often because he was the Son of Man. So anyway, those are just some questions that help you realize that this can be a little tricky. This can be a little, uh, not a little, this can be profoundly, profoundly theological. I mean, we are we are going into the really, really deep into the pool today. In fact, one of my, one of my um, applications toward the very end uses an analogy other than the pool, and I speak of a bottomless ocean. So just, just by way of encouragement, even though we haven't quite jumped in yet to the, the mystery, the mystery, that's a good word, the mystery of how one person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, can have two natures, a human and a divine. How that can be is ultimately a mystery. And if any of you think you got that satisfied in your mind, if you think you've worked that out and you have a pretty good grasp on that. Please talk to me later because 
I'm actually going to ask you to teach next week. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a mystery, and I, I and in one sense this is an application. If we refuse to believe things that we don't understand and yet know they're revealed in the Bible, we are very, very proud people. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about God. We're talking about God. Shouldn't we expect mystery? Given the nature of God and the attributes of God and the works of God? Of course. And what do you do when you stand before mystery? You quit standing. You bow down. And you say, God, I don't understand this. And I don't have to understand this. I just believe it. Because you've revealed it. That's that's what I told Mark this morning. I was reading the chapter and everything. I said, I don't need need this. I I, I just believe it already. I don't, you can believe, you know, you're, you're nuts if you think that. You're nuts. Human. He said you're nuts if you think that. <laughs> I mean, really, I, that's just the way I look at it. I, I believe I'm glad, it. Ron, that that's your natural emotional reaction. And, and none of this is to suggest don't think hard. You should think and think and think and think and try to grasp and go as far as the human intellect and mind can go in understanding concepts. But know when you've come to a dead end. Know that I can't go any further unless God gives me more light from some other portion of Scripture. And then just say, so how shall I respond to this? Well, with a sense of awe and with a sense of embracing it. And and ask the Lord, so Lord, to the extent that I do seem to understand this, which is far from completion, change me and help me and enable me to live in a way that's appropriate given what I do presently understand. So, I mean, it's all mystery. We've already, Larry taught on the Trinity. By the way, welcome home, Larry. When did you get back? I got back on Tuesday. Okay. You had a great time? And oh, it was great. It was excellent. Talk to Larry and Ava about their visit to Italy with the family. and We prayed for prayed for you and I prayed for that one specific prayer request. You remember the one? Yeah, we we'll wanna Oh wow. We want to hear about Actually, that. Double. Well make sure you share that with us. I'll just say this. He he had a unique and he was looking for a unique opportunity to interact with one of his grandsons about the gospel and to help him come to a knowledge of Christ and so forth. So he uh, asked that we prayed about that. So Okay, that's that's all introductory. Let's just let's pick up some speed now. Uh, let's shift at least into second, if not not third third gear. So, in in our textbook, if you would just one more time quickly turn to Roman numeral nine, it's the first page under contents. Actually, you turn to actually yeah, Roman numeral nine. Just want you all to see this. This is a quick kind of overview of where we are. And really, in a sense, how far we've come. We just drove back from Houston, which is 900 miles. And there are many times I wish I could just be way up high and look and see how far I am in terms of how far I still need to get and how far I've gone. And uh, you can do that with GPS, though. So it sometimes it's discouraging and sometimes it's encouraging. 
what I'm going to show you is encouraging because look, we've already covered the doctrine of the Word. We've already covered the doctrine of God. Turn to Roman numeral 10. We've already talked, uh, considered the doctrine of God's creatures. And now today we begin the doctrine of the Son. And notice where we're headed. We'll, in about four weeks, five weeks, we'll start on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In one sense, we've already considered the doctrine of the Father under the doctrine of God. Then we go to the doctrine of salvation. So we're doing well. I mean, when I looked at my book today and, and saw that we're this far through the book already, to me it seems like we just started just a couple of weeks ago, but we're already a third of the way through this book. So now we're going to be thinking in particular about what the Scriptures teach concerning the Son of God, God the Son. And it's only four chapters on this particular subject. And today we're looking at his person. And then, God willing, next week we'll look at the offices, prophet, priest, and king. And then the following we'll look at the work of the Son of God. Why did he come? What was his main purpose in coming to earth? What is he doing now? And then finally we'll consider in one chapter the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation. So we're focusing on um, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Son of God in today's lesson. And we're, we're working just particularly on the person, the person, not the works, not the offices, the person. So the first thing I want to emphasize for you folks today is that when we think of the person, we should sort of have this in our minds. Um, Just one person two natures. going to see, of course, is that the two natures are one divine and two human. When we think of the divine nature, we're talking about the deity of Christ, and when we talk about the human, obviously we're talking about the humanity. So this is the expression, and I'd like you to just kind of fix that in your mind and say it over and over, and whenever the subject of Christ comes up, you can quickly say to yourself, I know a little bit about the second person of the Trinity. He is one person. He's not two persons. Having two natures doesn't make him two persons. That's where the mystery comes in. He's one person with two Natures. I'm sorry I didn't put an S on there. Um, and he has a human nature. He took upon himself a human nature, but he was already divine. And the mystery, the, the real mystery comes in as to how uh, these two things can be combined in one person. How can one person be both divine and human? That's where the mystery comes in. And you may have noticed the word, I don't think it's an important word to 
to know or to memorize or to be able to use, but this is called the hypostatic union. <laughs> it's just a technical word, the mystery of how these two natures, human and divine, are united in one person. <coughs> That's the heart of the mystery. And let me just quickly say this. This is also the departing place from truth into error. This is the departing place from orthodoxy to heresy. And if you noticed our chapter today, it, it actually went into three or four of those heresies, and I'm not going to even discuss them. But on page, um, you might just notice this with me quickly. On page 149, he identifies in 150 six, six heresies that have emerged in the history of the church. You know, Docetism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, and so forth. Now, probably a lot of you, if you did in fact read that, just said, I don't know that I understand that. But here's all you need to understand. Is that every heresy concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ ends up being a departure from either this truth, that he's divine, or this truth, that he's also human, or denying somehow both of them. All of those heresies err usually on one side or the other. There are heresies that believe Jesus wasn't really God, of course. And there are other heresies that actually deny his humanity. And I don't think it's real important for you all to know. The, I don't think it's important at all, really, for you to know. I'd say if you're in seminary and you're on your way to being a pastor, um, you need to be exposed to those heresies. It's funny, I asked Jonathan, he'd be embarrassed for me to tell him this, but the other night I said, hey, Jonathan, do you, do you still remember what these things are? And I named all six of them, and I'm going to say four of them, he nailed instantly. He just said, that's the belief that such and such. I said, what about this? He said, that's the belief that so and so. What about this? And then a couple of them were like, you know, I've heard of that. I don't remember what that was. I wouldn't have done nearly as well on defining any of those things, but I was refreshed in studying it this week. You don't need to know that. What you need to know is that this is what the Bible teaches, though we haven't looked at any verses of Scripture yet, that Jesus Christ is one person. He's the second person of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They constitute one God. One God in three persons. We're looking at one of those persons. And what we're saying about this person is that God, that he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And all heresies and all error about the person of Jesus Christ revolves around this thing right here, that this one person has both a divine and a human nature. That's all you need to know. I don't think it's critical for you to know what Apollinarianism is. You can just say, well, it's one of those heresies that denied either the human nature or the divine nature of Christ. That's all you need to know, that it's not biblical. Okay, so...
This is a good statement right here uh, that, that you should memorize. One person, two natures. The other one that I've already mentioned is one God in three persons. I think that's worth memorizing, because that's what you believe about the Trinity. Somebody says, what's, what's the Trinity? That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that there's one God who exists in three persons. And then we go beyond that, though, don't we? And we say, and all three of them are equal in power and in divinity. So, there you go. One God and three persons. But then when you come to one of those persons, namely the second person, you say one person, two natures. Okay, everybody with me so far? Okay, so the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity. He's equal to God because He is God. He's always existed. The Son of God, as I said earlier, never had a beginning. He possesses all the attributes of God because He is God. And He possesses the same glory of God. So what I'm actually doing for just a second before we before we look carefully at these two natures, is I want to I just want to talk about the second person again in view of the Trinity. Okay? How does how does the second person relate to the Trinity? Well, these are the things you just need to keep believing and remembering and seeing in the Bible. That all three persons are equally God. It's not like the Father is more divine than the Son. Or the Son is more divine than the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God in their nature, in their essence. But, and I, Larry made this clear when he taught on this, but they are distinct. Even though they're one God, they're distinct from one another relationally. They're distinct from one another in terms of, I would use this word, vocationally. By that I mean their works, what they do. But they're one in essence, they're one in nature, they're one in their glory, they're one in sharing all of the attributes, and yet they're distinct from one another. They have a relationship with each other. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love one another, commune with one another, work with one another, promote their glory with one another. And last night I pulled out that I told you about this book by um, Tim Keller, and the last chapter is called The Dance. How many of you have read that, The Dance? Dave has read that? Do you remember sort of what it was about? I was being a part of it. Yes, That's yes, yeah, yeah. Well, man, I reread it last night. I read the whole thing. I sat there and just read it. I 
I don't remember when I've read a whole chapter that fast because it was so good. And then I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to reread that this week. But what he's saying is that they love each other so much and always did before the world ever existed, before they ever did any creating. They were perfectly happy. There was no need or emptiness in God. And God was lonely. God needed to do something. God was bored. God was not content. No. They were perfectly, gloriously happy in love with one another. And he pictures it as the father and the son revolving around their other oriented, around the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the son revolving around the father and the Father and the Holy Spirit revolving around the Son, and as it were, in a, in a dance of self-love and glory, not in a sinful way, because they're perfect, so delighted in one another, but their sense of, of glory and delight was to share this and to create mankind so that mankind could join that dance and us get out of our individualism and learn how to revolve around other people, starting with revolving around God, and how someday we'll all be in this glorious God's presence. It's, it's an amazing chapter. It's amazing, and it challenges you to think, well, if that's what God is like, and that's what he wants me to be like, I need to be other-oriented, and I need to be building my life not only around God, but around other people. But anyway, the, what I'm trying to say is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were perfectly content. But the main point I'm actually getting at is that though they are one in their divinity and in their glory, they... See, I'm looking for a... Okay, I didn't, but I don't need to have it. Anyway, in the, in the shorter catechism, the question is asked, uh, are there more gods than one? And the answer is no, there's only one God who exists in three persons. And then it ends by saying, who are equal in their glory and power. Or it says in their power and glory. Yes, in their power and glory. And here again, I'm so hesitant to ever take issue with the Puritans or with that shorter catechism because it's just amazing. I love it to death. But honestly, as I looked at it, I thought, okay, they're equal in power and glory. I would have preferred if they would have said they're equal in their attributes and glory because power is just one. So, I mean, if I were to challenge them, I said, so they're not equal in their knowledge? They're not equal in their wisdom? They're just equal in their power? And I know they would say, of course not. They're equal in every, every attribute. So, so the three persons of the Trinity share equally all of the attributes of the Godhead. And yet they are distinct. So the second person of the Trinity, we need to think of him as completely God. 1,000% as much God as the Father and as the Holy Spirit equal to the other two persons of the Trinity. I'm talking about the Son right now. The Son of God is equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit in terms of all the attributes, and the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son in terms of all of the attributes because they're all equal in all of their attributes, but they are distinct. There is a Father. There is a Son. There is a Holy Spirit. 
The Father eternally begot the Son, which is a mystery in and of itself. It doesn't mean that the Son began. It's a relationship that we're to understand. It's a relationship within the Trinity. There is a Father-Son relationship, and there's the Holy Spirit. So this now we're talking then about the Son of the second person of the Trinity. And he has his unique work. So I thought one other illustration I might put up today very quickly, just to emphasize this uh, distinctness. Our chapter actually deals with this just a little bit. But if we think of God the Father... And we think of God the Son. We think of God the Holy Spirit. And we think that they're all, and think of them as all being equal in their divinity and in their glory. But when it comes to their roles, their roles, okay, I'm thinking of Scott, he just comes to my mind. Scott and Christina are one in Christ. Which one of these two people has the most dignity as an image bearer of God? Scott or Christina? Neither. They share in that dignity. The three persons of the Trinity share in, if I may use the word, the dignity of what it means to be God. But when, when you look at that home, who do you think is the gracious, Christ-like, at least wants to be Christ-like, head of the home. I think I know Scott and Christina well enough to say this safely. It ain't Christina. <laughs> she loves her husband, looks up to her husband, who recognizes his role. But wait a minute, we just acknowledge that you're equal in your dignity. These three persons are equal in their divinity. But it doesn't mean that they, they do exactly the same thing. They have a relationship with each other, and then when it comes to what they do, they do different things. So when we think biblically of God the Father, we think of the one who, let's just put up the big word redemption here. And this is the one who planned, planned it, at least the scriptures speak of him. He planned it in eternity, and we, we call that plan election, don't we? But who was it that purchased this redemption? In history, it was the Son, and this is what we call the atonement. I'll just abbreviate that word. So the father plans, the son purchases, I think I'll just put an S there, and the Holy Spirit applies. He applies this in time, and he, and he begins this by what we call regeneration. Okay? That's an oversimplification. This is all true. If I bow anything up there, please go up and crack it, okay? I'm a little paranoid when I see people shaking their heads. No, 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 no. I was joking you not about like me. If you don't like me, you just <laughs> I don't like you, man. But I love you. Okay. <laughs> no, I love you. 
I was joking about applies. I said because they make fun of me at home. I was reading something yesterday, and I guess I said I pronounced something wrong. They were laughing at me. So I said, see, he spells it wrong, and I say it wrong. That's all I was saying. A P P L I E S, is it? Is it I E S? Thanks for that. I, I'm really dangerous when it comes to spelling. Medina was in bed. Check with you before you do something. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't say that, but she's, she's like a walking dictionary. Um, thanks for that, though, Jim. So you see, okay, what am, I, what am I illustrating? There's a oneness in their essence. There's a threeness in their work. Right? The father plans, put an S on there. The Son purchases, the Holy Spirit applies. And there are many other ways we could look at the diversity of their work. So back to the Son, the Son of God is equal to the Father in all of his attributes and glory, but he does things that are unique. And, and, and so he had to take on human flesh to do that work. He was already divine, but he takes on humanity in order to do this purchasing because this purchase has to take place on a cross. There has to be the shedding of blood. There has to be a human sacrifice to redeem human beings, but it has to be a human being who is sinless. If he had committed one sin, the atonement would have been worthless. So I'm going to get rid of all that. If you maybe took notes on that, you, you see the big picture. Now we're back to, now we're not thinking anymore of three persons, one God, three persons, one God, three persons, one God. We're thinking of one person, two natures, one person, two natures, one person, two natures. So now if you took the quiz, you'd be so fast at getting an A. How many natures did the Son of God did, now, now, we have to be careful because, see, already in my mind, I'm saying, okay, that's, that's not technically right. How many natures did the Son of God have? You're, if you're really sharp, you're going to say, you're talking about before the incarnation or after. Right? You with me? Because before Jesus became a man, he only had one nature. But if I put it this way, how many natures did the Son of God who came to, the, to, came to earth to be our Savior and lived on this earth how many natures did he have you're all going to say two what was the one he took on human what do we call that theologically what do we call that thing when god became flesh we just went through a, a season that celebrated what do we call that what's that technical word incarnation it means enfleshment. He took on our flesh. But while he walked on this earth, did he only have one nature? No. Because he was not a mere man. But neither was he just the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He became the Son of Man. And that, by the way, was his favorite self-designation. If you just want to look up the phrase sometime, not that I expect anybody to do this, but if you did a word study on the phrase, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man, you'll see that he used it 
40 sometimes, some say as many as 80. I noticed a difference between, uh, actually what what's Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam Waldron says in this book, he says 80 times he, he did it. Someone else I read said 40, so it's probably more than 40. It's a lot of times, it was his favorite self-designation to call himself the Son of Man. But was he the Son of Man or was he the Son of God? Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Who was that you, Jim? No, it was Ron. It was Ron, okay. He was both. And that's what this class is about. So just kind of to review, please remember this. Every heresy in the history of the Christian church concerning the person of Jesus Christ is a departure from either believing he was fully human and fully divine at the same time. Now that's something I haven't just I haven't emphasized. He wasn't like a little bit God and a little bit man and together they became the God man. He was 100% man and he was 100% God. The way some preachers put it is he was he was so 100% God it was as if he was not man. He was so 100% man as if he, as if he were not God. But the fact is he was 100% God and man in one person. And he had to be 100% of each. And again, that's where the mystery comes in. I just want to ask you, you know, guys, are any of us too proud to just embrace the mystery and actually be happy with it? Have you reached the place where you're happy with mystery? It doesn't mean you don't want to think hard and go as far as you can go and explore as much as you can and understand as much as possible, but it means that when you get to the, as we said, to the dead end, you say, this is a good place to bow down. I'm just happy, God, you're who you are. I'm just so happy. I couldn't worship a God who wasn't mysterious. Can you worship a God who's not mysterious? Can you trust a God that you fully understand? If you fully understand Him, you're equal with Him in His intelligence. If you're equal with Him in His intelligence, take turns sitting on the throne. It's a good place to be when we don't, when we come to mystery. And you know the granddaddy mystery of them all is how God can be absolutely sovereign and man at the same time absolutely responsible for His sinfulness. How we can believe that God has decreed everything that will ever happen and yet man is responsible for all of his sin. It's a mystery. It's the father antinomy, by the way. That's what, that's what theologians... And that's a good word, antinomy. If you really break it down etymologically, it means anti-law. That is, the laws of logic. There are antinomies in the Bible. And we do well to say that's a mystery. But now there's a difference between antinomies in particular and mysteries in general. Not all mysteries are antinomies. But an antinomy is when two things seem to say, well, here's the Bible teaches A and the Bible teaches B, but they both they seem to be contradictory. How can God, God be absolutely sovereign? You know, we got it in Acts chapter 2. This is simply a quick one that comes to my mind. I wasn't planning on doing this, but go to Acts 2 and notice in Peter's sermon... <clears throat> Peter's preaching, man, you talk about a bold sermon on the day of Pentecost. We'll just start with verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
And so kind of like, listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you guys saw this, you saw it over and over and over and over and knew that he was no mere man. This Jesus, now we get real theological, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's divine sovereignty. This was God's plan all along. And now he's got the audacity to try to make them feel guilty for what they did. Look at the next words. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then he quickly reminds them that he rose up from the dead. And he goes on to preach. He was shameless in holding them accountable for the crucifixion. And he does that in several of his sermons. And so does the Apostle Paul. The boldness is amazing of these preachers. Well, wait a minute. Were these people guilty or not? How can they be guilty? It says that Jesus was delivered uh, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was a definite plan on God's part. Couldn't have gone otherwise. It wasn't a general plan. It could go this way or that way. It was a definite plan. They're both true. What do you mean? You're saying that divine sovereignty and human responsibility somehow can coexist? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. They just don't coexist in our little pea-shooting brains. Because we say, that's, I don't know how to put those together. And God says to us, if we understand our Bible, says, you don't have to put them together. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, remember when with Jonathan... He didn't like certain foods, and he said, I don't, I don't like it. He had that, some of you know, he had that, uh, that large contraction. Don't is a contraction for do not, isn't it? He had a real large one. It went like this. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. And my pat answer was, son, you don't have to like it. You just have to eat it. Okay? <laughs> eat up, boy. <laughs> And I'm, I'm a firm believer in teaching your children to eat whatever you put before them, but just don't put huge portions. Just have them eat a little asparagus, just a little spinach, just a little this and a little that. And what you'll grow up, what you'll have at the end of the process is a child who likes all kinds of foods. But if you say, you say well, if you don't like it, honey, I'll, Daddy won't serve you that anymore. I'm sorry. No, I'm off the subject. That's on parenting. Tim has a whole lecture on that in his course on parenting. Okay, so antinomies, embrace them. Embrace them knowing that you can't understand them fully, but you delight in them and you say, I like it when God's just God. I don't have to understand this. I don't have to understand how the second person of the Trinity could have two natures in that one person. That hypostatic union, I don't get that thing. Well, all you have to get is that there are two natures in one person because the one person took on a second nature when he was incarnated. And it was essential to our salvation. That's what you have to understand. 
Okay, um, anybody want to pop in or ask a question at this point? Yeah, Jim, and then we got two Jims. Uh, it, it does take all the pressure off of it if you can believe, but you do have to believe in spirit and truth, worship in spirit and truth. So we have to be knowledgeable about this to a certain degree, but then like you say, there's a point you just have to bow down and pray. Yes, yes, that's a good point. We, we, we have to embrace this in, in, in spirit and truth and we can't just accept everything. We still have to study Scripture. We still have to apply everything we know in Scripture for these subjects. Yeah, that's that's good, Jim. I agree. That's a that's a that's a good point to make. Well, you know, the one point that I haven't made, and it's time to make it because I'm just talking about the concept. Okay, I think you've got the concept. We've 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 looked at the Trinity, and this chapter isn't primarily about the Trinity, but we are now looking in particular at the second person of the Trinity and we're seeing these two things. So I'd like to have you come back to um, your text. If you just turn in your text again to page um, what I want you to, I think, see is actually page 151 because what he, what Allison has, does and everybody who writes a chapter on the person of the Son of God, understanding that he has two natures, sooner or later has to deal with either his human nature or his divine nature. In this particular case, he starts with um, the divine nature. You'll see that it's the first, it's the second paragraph on page 151. Scripture supports the Son's full deity. His divine titles, the divine references, his nature is divine, <clears throat> He has divine attributes. He engages in divine activities. He gives us five different evidences of the divinity of the Son of God. And then notice the next, the, not the next paragraph, the, the last new paragraph on page 151. These points underscore the full deity of the Son of God. Scripture supports the incarnate Son's full humanity. So now he gives us, Jesus was born like any other human being. He grew and matured, normal physical needs, common human emotions, relationships, and so forth. So he's now giving the biblical evidence of the humanity of Christ. You go to some other theologian, like for example, Grudem which again was good. Did you happen to read Grudem today, Dave? You're my Grudem man, okay? Um, if you ever have time and you own this book, you should. He happens to deal with the humanity of Christ. You can't see that from there, but the little box that I have in sort of a, a reddish color is the humanity of Christ. Virgin birth, human weakness and limitations, Talks about Jesus having a human body that got tired, that got hungry. And then he goes on to talk about his sinlessness. And then he turns to the subject of the deity of Christ. So it's, it's, it's okay, it doesn't make any difference whether you start with the deity or you start with the humanity. Most of them start with the deity because he was first divine before he came human. Okay? His divinity preceded his humanity. So that's maybe that's a logical reason to start there. 
Now, I want us to look at just a couple of passages before we have to conclude today. Um, maybe we're only going to be able to look at one, but would you turn to John chapter 1 and just notice, and it's interesting, it was interesting to me, to me at least this week, and I discovered this after about four different passages, I said, well, wait a minute, this, this is almost tying the two together. Often, apparently, the Bible emphasizes both the deity and the humanity of Christ in a close compass of Scripture. So here we have verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So you see there's a distinction there. He doesn't say the Word is God. He said the Word was with God. And then he says the Word was God. He was in he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. And if we just still doubted, well, who's he talking about? It does seem like there's two because there was the word and then and then this word was with God. So that's at least two. And then when you get down to verse 14, the the mystery at least is somewhat solved. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. You see the distinction, father and son, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. He's talking about Christ. The word became flesh. So does this passage teach the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus? Ron should say again, yes. Yes. He's equal with God, but the word became flesh. So here's a passage that puts the two natures of Christ together within just a a compass of a few verses. And you see that again and again. If you'll just turn quickly to Philippians 2.5. Jason, do you know when this class is over? Is it over at not 10, 15? Or... <laughs> it was, you know what? Nobody complained. Nobody complained. They appreciated your teaching. But I, I, I did smile when someone said Jason thought the class was over at 1030. The good news, folks, is I don't think it's over till 1045. <laughs> okay. Okay. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which... By the way, in verse, verse 3, we'll start at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry, rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what I was talking about earlier. We need to be other-oriented people, don't we? We're all, we're just so in love with ourselves. Whole world revolves around us. The whole universe revolves around us. And then Paul says, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, there's the divinity, did not count equality with him a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. There's his humanity, being born in the likeness of men. The Bible often puts the two natures of the second person together in a very close proximity. Which one do we believe? Was he a divine or was he human? And he was both. 
He was divine first and then he took on humanity. All right, we could go on and on and on and on and on. And you, I hope you see that about every subject that we come to. But I just leave you with this because our time is gone. The so what? My first application was, and I wish we did have a lot more time because I would love to just ask you all, so what difference should this make in your lives? I really think that would be a productive question. I think a lot of you would really give some good, helpful insight right here, but we can't. I just wrote this. Number one, as we wade in, as we wade into the deep sea and then dive into the bottomless ocean of truth through the study of God's word and theology, we should wonder less and less why it will take a never-ending eternity to grow in our understanding of the person, attributes, works, ways, and wonders of our infinitely glorious God. You know, that's a long way of saying the more we go into the truth of God's word about God himself, and in this case, God the Son, and we confront mystery after mystery after mystery, and someone says, do you know that throughout eternity you'll still be studying theology? You won't say, how could that last more than a year? Or maybe 10 years. And he says, no, how about a million? How about a billion? How about a trillion years? Because the depths of God are such, they're infinite, by the way, that we will never exhaust the full knowledge of God. So when you're confronted with a mystery like one person having two natures, you say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take a long time in eternity to grasp the infinity of God's glory. Secondly, since the need for reconciliation was between God and man, the work of mediation required a person who was both God and man, divine and human. The infinite penalty of sin required an infinitely meritorious payment. Well, there's too much competition now for even sound, and I've gone beyond my time, so I thank you for listening carefully. Read next week. Enjoy the offices of Christ, and we'll come back to uh, pursue the doctrine of the Son of God. And I'm not going to pray. Yes.